0: Bob had to be called to Florida, kind of last minute again, um, this week. He was actually down and then came back to Chicago and then ended up going back down to take care of his parents. So you can continue to keep him in your prayers. The updates are um, kind of changes day to day, so it's it's tough to give an accurate update. But you can definitely remember to to pray for Bob as he's caring for his his two parents who are aging, and he sends his love and is um, I can tell really missing not being with us this morning. Um, last week, uh, we read the first half of Luke 13, and one of the themes that I noticed in the first half of that chapter is that people are asking the wrong questions. There are a couple of events that happen. Uh, people, some are murdered by, uh, by Pilate and the, Roman, and the Roman guards, and there's another accident where 18 are killed when a tower falls in Siloam, and the question is asked, um, is this, is this punishment? Is this God's judgment? Is this God deciding who's right and who's wrong and handing down his judgment through these violent events? And Jesus says, no, that's not what's happening. You're asking the wrong questions. Jesus tells them to repent. And then Jesus enters a synagogue and heals a woman who's been crippled for 18 years and he doesn't ask whether it's breaking the Sabbath law or if she is crippled by God's design as some punishment. He doesn't ask the questions that the synagogue leader probably asks in his head. He sees her as a daughter of God and he makes her well. He asks no qualifying questions. So we're going to continue in Luke chapter 13 and pick up at verse 22. I'm going to stop halfway through this. Um, it's a long passage, so we're going to break it up into two chunks. Jesus went through one town and village after another, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, will only a few be saved? He said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able. When once the owner of the house has got up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then in reply, he will say to you, I don't know where you come from. Then you'll begin to say, we, we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. But he'll say, oh, I don't know where you come from. Go away from me, all you evildoers. Oh, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrown out. Then people will come from east and west, from north and south, and will eat in the kingdom of God. Indeed, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. I'm to pause right there. Oof. It's a terrifying section. Jesus is traveling in the countryside teaching from town to town. He's making his way to Jerusalem, a significant city in the book of Luke. Luke the, the Gospel of Luke has the word Jerusalem in it 90 times in its 25 chapters. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Jesus is headed towards Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is not only the, the capital city, the political center It is also representative of Jesus' suffering and his death. It is the place where Jesus will be crucified. When Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem, he is setting his face to that narrow door, that narrow path that he is choosing to walk, the path of sacrificial love and suffering and ultimately of death. And Jesus is on his way there when most of the book of Luke happens. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem when someone asks How many will be saved? Well, no, he asks, um, will only a few be saved? Not how many will be saved. He asks, will only a few be saved? First off, I think it's important to recognize as with the questions that have been asked in the first half of the chapter, Jesus doesn't answer his question. This man asks an arithmetic question And Jesus doesn't give an arithmetic answer. But the church has used this passage historically under the assumption that Jesus' response to this person is a straightforward answer. And we stop after Jesus seems to confirm his assumption that only a few will be saved. And Jesus says, oh yes, the gate is very narrow. We don't read the rest of the story the man asks an arithmetic question, but he doesn't get an arithmetic answer. The question um, its not too uncommon, as it might not be uncommon today. Who is saved? Is there a hell? Who gets to heaven? How many will be saved? How do you go there? What do you have to do to be sure? What about all, the, all those other people who never heard? What, what happens to them? These are pretty common questions. They were fairly common for Jews to ask. How many will be saved? Will only a few be saved? This person, I assume he is a man, um, we, we're not told, but I, I don't know why. I, just, I, I assume this is a man, and um, this person is almost certainly Jewish, and he asks the question to confirm his suspicion that only a few will be saved. And shocker, he is one of them. Everyone who thinks that only a few will be saved always also finds themselves among the saved. It's convenient. Everyone who thinks only a few will be saved seems to think they are among the lucky few. The church has used Jesus' answer about the narrow door and the weeping and gnashing as as a warning for outsiders about salvation. We've used the threatening part of this passage to create fear. Oh, the way is narrow and elite, and it's nice to be on the inside of something that is narrow and elite. But the actual effect of Jesus' response to this man is entirely the opposite of reassuring. Jesus' response to this person is, oh yes, few. It is a narrow door, but you have not found it yet. Jesus tells a person, or Jesus tells a story to this person, which is, you you kind of miss it, but Jesus tells this man a story. And he says, um, Jesus tells a story to this person who is confident of the narrowness of God's salvation and his place in it. And in this this story, apparently someone finds the door and knocks, but is told, I don't know where you're from. Which is an interesting thing for for God to, to say to someone who knocks. I don't know where you're from. He says, well, you saw us. You do know where I'm from. We, we ate together. You, you taught on my very street. I was from Nazareth. You, you know where I'm from. He says, says, oh, I don't know where you're from. There will be grieving and teeth grinding when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God and you yourselves will be thrown out. Then people will come from everywhere. East, west, north, south, and will eat in the kingdom of God. Some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. I don't know where you come from, God tells this man who knocks. But you are going to be very upset when you realize that it doesn't matter where you come from. That people from everywhere are at my table. North, south, east, and west. In the kingdom of God, there are people from everywhere, but I don't know where you're from. You are going to weep and wail when you realize that I don't care where you come from, but you spent your life worried to death about it. The narrow door passage in scripture is about a small group of people, pretty sure of their privileged place in the kingdom of Jesus, and they ask, will only a few be saved? And Jesus says, oh yes, the door is narrow, and you haven't found it yet. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. He said to them, Go and tell that fox for me. Listen, I am casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I finish my work. Yet today, tomorrow, and the next day I must be on my way, because it's impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Thanks be to God. The person who asks, will only a few be saved? Has not found the narrow door. That is what Jesus tells him. And here we are given two more examples of those who have not found the narrow way. Herod had beheaded John the Baptist because John the Baptist had called him out for his own sins. And we're told that Uh, Herod had also requested to meet with Jesus when he heard about the amazing things Jesus had done. At first, he's scared that John the Baptist has come back from the dead. Um, And then he he just, well, let me me bring this guy in and see if I can just put my arm around him and convince him to be a pupil of mine. Jesus has no interest in meeting with him. But when Jesus is arrested, he is sent by Pilate to Herod because Jesus is a Galilean, and so Jesus was under the authority of, of Herod. So Jesus is sent to Herod and Herod asks him a bunch of different questions and tries him to, tries to get Jesus to do some tricks and Jesus won't do it. Jesus, Luke tells us, gave no answer. Herod longs to be a contemporary of Jesus, a comrade. And had Jesus entertained him, surely Jesus could have avoided the crucifixion. Herod will not find the narrow way because it is not his way because it is empty of power. It gives power away. The narrow way is the one that Christ walks on his way to Jerusalem and the cross and it is self-giving and not self-promoting. The kingdom of heaven does not belong to Herod and so Herod will not be able to find it. The kingdom of heaven does not belong to Herod, but to the woman who cannot stand upright. And it will be more difficult for Herod to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Herod is threatened by Jesus and wants to kill him. But, Jesus says, he won't get the chance, because Jerusalem will kill him first. Which is true. Jerusalem will not find the narrow door either. Even though it is the center of power and the center of religious life and the temple sits there, Jerusalem will not find the narrow way. Jesus, we're given this this beautiful image, Jesus longs to gather Jerusalem like a hen, like a mother longs for her children, Jesus longs for Jerusalem. Perhaps it would have been less painful to be rejected and killed by Herod than it would to be Killed by Jerusalem. Jesus describes his affection for her as a hen, wanting to bring all of her chicks under her protective wings. These are the images of God that we are given in Luke 13. Don't let the weeping and gnashing of teeth, don't, don't let it uh, allow us to miss the point. The images we are given of God's heart in Luke 13 are of a table that is full of people from east and west and north and south, and of a mother hen, longing to gather her chicks, longing to protect them, longing for them to stay near her. God is a mother who longs to set the table and fill it with all of her children's favorites for them to enjoy. God is a mother who longs to gather up her children into her strong arms. But of course she cannot do that if her children despise her and reject her. And God has given Jerusalem and has given us the radical freedom to choose just that. Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem. Jerusalem will know about Jesus. The crowds on the sides of the street will watch him. They will call for the very crucifixion that at the same time condemns them and saves them. But they will not find the narrow door. We're given all these examples of who won't find the narrow door. I guess the question becomes, what does it look like when someone does find the narrow path, when someone, when someone understands what it means to follow Christ? On Thursday, I attended a breakfast at Breakthrough where we uh, got to hear from one of the, the new teams that's, that has developed over the last year at, at Breakthrough, and it's the violence prevention team. And it's, so it's a group of six or seven people um, who respond to calls that they receive, um, where there's potential violence, and so, um, yeah, I mean, yeah. So, so if, if there's potential gang activity or or some kind of conflict that's escalating, even before the police get the call, this team at Breakthrough get the call, and so they go to these places, places where um, places where you and I do not go, where. Um, where we can't and won't go. The, these people get the calls about conflicts that are happening from, often it's from, from mothers or aunts and uncles of, of people involved in this, and they call this team. And in the middle of the night, anytime, night or day, and these people all have families, um, they, they respond to these calls and they go to the corners, the houses, the spots where there's violence escalating, and, and they try to mediate and have conversations with these people. Um, Jeremiah is one of the team members uh, and he's, you know, a young guy um, from from that neighborhood. He shared um, that his work on this team was tested when his younger sister was shot and killed. And he had to ask himself whether he really believed in reconciliation rather than revenge. The path is narrow and not many find it. But Jeremiah is striving to find that narrow gate and to help others walk in it as well. And so when he shows up to a scene, uh, you know, putting himself at risk and in real danger to try to de-escalate a situation of violence, that is is the narrow gate. And not many find it. And one of the things they do is they have, um, I met Henry, who's uh, just a lovely a uh, lovely guy, and and he's the event planner for the team. They have an event planner for the team. What? Um, but one of the things they do is that when there's a shooting, there was a shooting on a corner. A car got shot up. I don't think anyone was killed. I, I don't quite remember all the details, but a, a mother and her children were in a car, and the car got got caught in some crossfire on this block. And, of course, the neighbors are just, you know, are outraged that this happened on their block and, and And it gets in the media, and then this neighborhood you know is known for this violence, and so one of the things they do is that when there's violence on a corner, what they do um, is they throw a party as soon as they can on that corner and so um, and so the violence team shows up, and they work with the people who are traumatized by having their car shot up. And they try to figure out, you know, how do we talk to the people that this happened and, 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 and try to find some reconciliation. And then, they, and then the event planner steps in and is like, we're going to throw a party. And so, um, and, and that, 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 you know, that gets no media coverage, that there's then a block party on the street that just got shot up on. But the neighbors know it. And the people who live on the street know it. And the kids know it. And they come out and they, they, they play games and there's face painting. And, and that block is redeemed. Um, And and that's beautiful. This is a group of people who believes in a God who longs to gather his children under his wings, who loves the people of Garfield Park like a mother loves her own, and who longs to set a feast before them. This is a, There's a shallow level that this man who asks, you know, will only a few be saved? There's a shallow level uh, of thinking, of theology, of an understanding of what it means to be saved. It's just, just shallow. And Jesus, Jesus doesn't do shallow answers, doesn't do vapid, you know, questions and answers. And so he, he, he forces this man to look deeply at who he is. There's, and there's a depth to knowing Christ that goes beyond... Um, Checking these boxes. This is a quote from Karl Barth. It's a little little dense, but I think it articulates kind of what's happening in this passage pretty well. And he writes this, to know Jesus Christ is to accept the word of reconciliation spoken in him and his prophetic work. Hence, to know Jesus Christ is from the very beginning, however modest or weak the knowledge, to know Jesus Christ is to take the side of Jesus Christ to become the responsible subject instead of a mere object in his cause, to be prepared not merely to hear His Word but also to repeat or accompany it, however softly or clumsily. I like that that, that the, the, the object and subject that he talks about to know Jesus is not simply um, to understand some facts, but it's to view yourself as a participant in what God is doing in the world. Not just an object, but a subject in God's salvation. I was thinking, you know, what are some examples, other examples of what it looks like to strive for the narrow gate. The word is where we get our word for agony. And It doesn't. The word "strive" for the narrow, the narrow door. It's the same word for agony. There's this sense of working at it, longing for it. I I came across a quote by Corey Ten Boom, and I thought, yeah, Corey Ten Boom is the the quote was just, um, uh, if Satan cannot make you bad, he will make you busy, which is a great quote. But I was thinking about the life of Corey Ten Boom as someone who understands not only what it means to know Jesus Christ as someone who's received her life, you know, her salvation through Christ, but to know what it costs to follow him, who was willing to put her own family and herself at risk for the sake of hiding, you know, Jews in the Netherlands to protect them. And she saved hundreds, and she ended up in a concentration camp. You know, that's the narrow path. Or someone like Oscar Romero, you know, a bishop in um, in El Salvador, who who understood that, uh, that it was going to cost him to walk down the narrow path and speak out against a government that was taking advantage of the poor and promoting violence. And when he spoke out, he was, um, you know, he was shot by the government while he was doing communion. Um, But I think, uh, I think it also looks like a business like Baker Miller choosing to leave money on the table so that they can treat their employees with absolutely as much dignity as they can possibly muster. And it's so cool to watch all the different ways that they do that. For one, someone I knew in D.C. who was wealthy, it looked like um, giving away 50% of their income rather than 10% of their income and striving to give 1% more Every year, giving away a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, recognizing that that striving, that was one of the things they could do in response to the gospel, to give away fifty percent and try to get up to ninety percent, to give away ninety percent of their income. Um I think it looks I think it looks like foster parenting. And foster parenting well, and allowing yourself to be vulnerable and broken and exhausted for a child that is not your own, but to whom the kingdom of God belongs. Treating all people self-sacrificially as if, as if they had a God that loved them like a mother. Jesus has spoken a saving word. Through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus has spoken a saving word over the man who asks the question and over Herod and over Jerusalem and over us. Through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, God has spoken a saving word over the entire world. And to find the narrow door is to repeat that word. To repeat that word of hope and grace and love, however clumsily, by living out in our daily lives that cruciform life as though we were accompanying Jesus on his way to Jerusalem, on his way to the cross. Let's pray. God, I pray that we would have a deeper understanding of your love that calls people from north and south and east and west, that prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. I pray that we would have an understanding of your love like a a hen brooding over her chicks. And I pray that you would help each of us identify ways this week that we might walk that, that difficult path the path of, um, of selfless, vulnerable love, that you would help us find that door and lead other people through it. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.